Pachango. Hey Chris, Gilbert here. I've been a listener for a long time, man. I think I picked up the podcast uh, somewhere around episode 30. So I've been listening to you basically from the start. Um, read all your books, listened to you religiously. Um, just wanted to jump on here and let you know how much I appreciate you and the podcast and the community that the podcast has uh, generated. Um, your words of wisdom and uh, your guests and all that uh, it's inspired me in ways that I don't even understand but uh, not to get all all weird on you but you and the podcast have kind of transformed my life in ways that I did not expect so I just wanted to say thank you for that keep doing what you're doing uh, I'm driving through southeastern Wisconsin right now on my way to my college to go pick up my uh tickets for my graduation so let's get it thank you gilbert much appreciated hope the reunion went well uh if you want to send an intro snip send it to intro snips at gmail.com try to keep it under a minute and uh you know it's not about me it's about the community so uh tell us who you are tell us what you're up to tell us how you're feeling Tell us what's important, what isn't. Here's something that's important. Uh, Rick Beato. You guys know I love Rick Beato. Had him on the podcast a couple of times. I, I mentioned him probably uh, too much for some people. Um, but Rick did uh, an interview recently with one of my famous, <laughs> favorite, favorite, not famous. He's famous, but he's also one of my favorite musicians and just music people, right? I mean, there are people who are in the world of music who aren't necessarily musicians, like Rick Rubin, who apparently doesn't even play an instrument very well. Um, but this guy, Daniel Lanois, is a producer. He produced The Joshua Tree. He produced So, Peter Gabriel. He produced a few uh, a few other U2 records. Produced um, Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan. I mean, he's, he's that guy. He's the guy everybody wants. And he's also a fantastic musician. And just a really thoughtful, wise, beautiful being. I'll play you... Uh, something that uh, that I recorded from the interview where Lenoir is, is talking about, you know, what is it about music? What is it about talent and creativity that matters? Is it technical skill? Is it where you studied? Is it, you know, who your teachers were? Is it what instrument you choose? No, it's something very simple. We as humans, we fall in love with something and we cherish it. I have to assume that back in the day when I was a kid that the things that we loved and cherished, we held on to them a little bit longer and loved them even more. And we didn't move on to 
something else. So, you know, I, I went out and bought a, a Safari's record when I was a kid. It had Wipeout on it. I kept listening to it and listening to it and listening to it. I didn't think, well, I've got 12,000 other albums. I mean, <laughs> no, I just, I just love yeah. that one. I say that to people who are, um, they want to become musicians. And it's overwhelming because should I go to Juilliard or maybe this, maybe that? No, play three notes that you love. Let me hear them. Dong, dong, dong. Okay, play it again. Dong, dong, dong. Your eyes, it may lead to that. But you have to be in love with something. What do you love? Who do you love? <laughs> Loving three notes is a great start. And off we go. And never forget the three notes you fall in love with. Because they may be useful to you along the way. I just love the way he brings it home. You know, because so much, we, we, we tend to get so caught up in the complications and the the sort of long-term ambitions. You know, I want to climb that mountain. Oh, I want to climb that mountain. I want to get all the way to the top of that mountain. But, oh, it's such a big mountain. And we never get started. We never take steps. We never... We never make the move because we're looking at the impossibility of this projected outcome. I have a friend, who, a really good friend, a, a guy I love a lot, who is going through some difficulties recently. And he, he wrote to me and he said, man, I just sometimes I feel like if I'm not going to be great, what's the point? If I'm not going to be amazing at something. Why bother? And it's like, God, that that's such a weight to carry on your shoulders, to be extraordinary at something, to be fantastic. What's wrong with being happy? I think so much of our anxiety comes from these inflated expectations we want to feast when what we really need is a meal. Everything needs to be spectacular, needs to be the best, needs to be, you know, we're number one, USA, USA. Fuck that. Let's just be happy together. Because the problem with shooting for the fucking stars is you never, ever fucking hit them. You will never hit them. And instead, what you did was you wasted all your ammo shooting at the fucking sky like an idiot. <sighs> and what I said to him was, lower your fucking sights, man. Stop worrying about being incredible and worry about being credible. And maybe, maybe this particular guy is very talented and a very hard worker and, uh, and, and just a... Uh, a very sincere and wonderful person. So he probably will end up being incredible at something. But first, just be credible. <laughs> just be happy. Just be honest and sincere and kind and good to the people around you. And then see how it happens. Because a lot of that other stuff, that extraordinary stuff, is outside of our control anyway. It's about timing and luck and 
things that we can't control. So control what we can control. Control your immediate area. I recorded a podcast the other day with uh, a couple of women who live here in Crestone. Um, they're in their 70s, I guess, and we were talking about the um, the sort of um, the, the political passion of the 60s and everyone wanted to change the world. And they, it, it ended in disappointment because they didn't change the world. But these particular women, it turns out, changed their world. They changed this little town of Crestone. They started a newspaper 30 years ago that's had a lot of influence over this town, a lot of influence over how things have developed and what ideas get amplified and, and which don't. And um, that's cool. That's awesome. Credible. Maybe not incredible, but fucking credible. Speaking of incredible, I just want to uh, give a little plug to my friend Michael, uh, who made this incredible bar for us, this beautiful bar from Monterey, Cyprus. Michael was on the podcast a while ago. You might remember he's the guy who's been uh, climbing trees and uh, saving houses and power lines and all sorts of um, vulnerable spots in the Bay Area from trees that are falling down or threatening to fall down. And um, he has a company called Ponderosa Millworks in Oakland. And uh, they take these trees that, that he salvages and they turn them into beautiful slabs and tables and chairs and bar stools and all sorts of things. If you love wood, I would uh, highly recommend you check out his website, PonderosaMillworks.com. He's an awesome dude. He's uh, He made a, a beautiful tea table for Anya before he even met her or before he met me. Um, he's he's just a, a real sweetheart. And uh, if you live in the Bay Area, you should drop by and check out his shop. It's in Oakland. It's uh, just the, the shop itself is a work of art. He's got like a city block of these synergistic businesses that are all working together. There's a like a soap manufacturer that takes the wood chips from where he's planing and, and cutting wood. And they use the wood chips to make soaps and essential oils. And uh, it's just really an awesome place. Um, you should definitely check it out. And if you're in need of any kind of organic furniture uh check them out ponderosamillworks.com okay what else i've got little uh post-it notes here of things i want to remember to mention mention the uh sex at dawn retreat outside of whitefish montana coming up in august i think there are a few spots left for that so if you're uh interested and you've got some time in august you want to come hang out it's going to be uh, movement and interesting conversation and really good food and martial arts and swimming in lakes and playing with the dog and saunas and cold plunges and uh, fireside conversation. It's going to be really good. It was great last year, although I, I had a COVID relapse and was spent a good bit of the time sweating in the van. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully I'll be healthy this time. 
and I will be uh, at the party. So if you're into that, check out um, Budokan. I'll have a, a link in the show notes. And uh, what else? I'll also have a link to my Amazon affiliate um, uh, situation in the show notes. So if you do buy things on Amazon and use that link, some of that money gets kicked back to support the podcast. Last bit of housekeeping I want to uh, throw in here is that uh, I'm doing the book club. And uh, so if you're a paying subscriber to the podcast, you should have received a notice of that. We're going to be reading The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler this time. All right. This episode is with Miriam Lancewood. Someone sent me... Uh, I don't know if it was a comment or an email or something, but someone said, hey, you should check out this couple. They're really cool. And I did. There was a YouTube show about them. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And they are cool. They're Peter and Miriam, really beautiful people. Miriam went to India, young Dutch woman traveling by herself. She meets this guy, Peter, from New Zealand, who's 30 years older than her. They fall in love. Peter's a bit of a peculiar guy. He gets off on walking all over the world and living very simply. And when I say very simply, I mean no tent. I mean sleeping under a tree or find a shed or whatever. Very... um you know, what's the word para? There's a word peregrine, peregrination, I think, is the, the noun of someone who just wanders to peregrinate, maybe. Um, so Peter and Miriam have walked all over the place, all over Europe. They lived in the wilderness in New Zealand for seven years, I think she said. Um, they're hardcore, these people. <laughs> they are awesome. They're both beautiful very intelligent, uh, very kind. Miriam was raised as a vegetarian and, and now she supports herself hunting with a bow and arrow. I mean, yeah, awesome people. So I will put links, um, to Miriam's YouTube page, uh, YouTube channel, uh, where you can see all sorts of stuff. They do little lectures and, um, and just quick, uh, vignettes and, uh, the show where I saw them as a BBC show, I think. Um, it's really a cool show. The The guy goes there and visits them in Bulgaria where they have this little cabin uh, and then they leave their cabin and they go and he goes back to see them again four years later. And so there's a lot that's happened in those four years. And so it's an interesting way to sort of, um, you know, bookends on uh, those four years of their lives. Anyway, they're lovely people, and they are back at their cabin in Bulgaria, and uh, Miriam had uh, pretty good Wi-Fi, so we recorded this over Zoom. I will post the video. Uh, for those of you who are paying subscribers on Substack, you'll have access to that. All right. I guess that's it. I think I always feel when I'm doing this, like, oh, they're, and, and often I'm right. Like, ah, oh, I forgot to mention, yeah. Um, but I'll get it next time. There's always a next time until there isn't. You're going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. That's going to be weird. I mean, if I'm still doing the podcast when I die, I wonder maybe Anya will do a, will do a podcast where she says, hi, this is Anya. I'm guest hosting this week. 
because <laughs> he died. Uh, I'm going, speaking of Rick Beato, all that shit about Rick Beato at the beginning, that was so I could circle back around and tell you that tomorrow I'm driving up to Denver and flying to Atlanta to record with Rick Beato on his show. He has a YouTube channel with three and a half million subscribers. And he invited me to come out and do his show. I got to be honest with you. I don't know why. I'm, I mean, uh, I love Rick. Uh, we get along really well. Uh, we have a lot in common, but I'm not a musician. And I'm not even like a, you know, like a Rick Rubin non-musician who's in the music world. So, um, you know, Rick interviews Daniel Lenoir and Sting and Brian May from Queen and, you know, just like these incredible Peter Frampton, these like legends of of music. And I don't know what I'm going to say or why he invited me to do this, but um, I'm doing it. So the uh, the imposter syndrome will be at full throttle for this one. But I'll try to ignore it, and we'll see how it goes. In any case, it gives me a chance to hang out with Rick a little bit, which is, you know, really the best part of this. So, all right. So that's it. Rick Beato, I will let you know when that goes up, uh, unless it's just so bad that he says, dude, let's just go get some dinner and forget about this, which, okay, I'll fly to Atlanta to have dinner with Rick Beato, I guess. <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah, Miriam Lancewood, check out this episode. I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation with her. I hope we can do it in person one day. Uh, I'd like to, I, I think we're going to do one with Peter, um, but um, they're busy. They teach uh, workshops. I think they're doing a workshop now. So maybe I'll, I'll get to chat with Peter later this summer. Miriam says he's kind of shy, but he seems like he's willing to do it. So that would be really cool. All right. Thanks for listening. I'm going to play you out appropriately, I think, with a song by Daniel Lenoir. It's his own original music. And it's a song I think about sometimes because, you know, I get a lot of emails from listeners who are going through a tough time in their lives and a relationship's ending or there's some big decision that needs to be made or... Um, they're having trouble trying to find their path. Uh, you know, the, I have a friend who's been in a job that he makes a lot of money at, but he kind of hates. And he was traveling for years and really enjoyed traveling and starting to run out of money. And he went home to, you know, go back to the job and make some money. And it just fucking, he couldn't handle it. He couldn't take it. He didn't, he felt like he was, you know, checking into prison or something. Um, and he's going through a rough time and, and I get lots of these emails and I've been reading my journals from when I was in my twenties. I, I found them in a box. I think I might've mentioned this in a recent episode and I've been transcribing them and I'm surprised at how anxious I was. And it, it engages a part of me that feels um, 
weird because because you know someone in their 20s or or 30s is is saying chris you seem calm and relaxed like you know how do i get that and i'm like giving my advice or whatever but then i read these journals and i see that when i was that age i wasn't fucking calm and relaxed i was losing my shit i was super anxious and trying to find my way and feeling lost and and desperate and so what i want to say to you if you're one of those people who's going through something like that and what i want to say to myself is it's gonna be all right i know that's so simple it's so cliched but sometimes it feels like the sky's falling but it's not it's gonna be all right This is a song called Sometimes by Daniel Lenoir. Thanks for listening. Sometimes, sometimes So Miriam, thank you for doing this. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. <laughs> it's an honor for me too. It, and it's, I think you and I both uh, probably spend a fair amount of time lamenting the the state of the world and the trajectory of modernity uh, and trying to escape it in some ways. But this is one of the cool things about being alive 
in 2023, right? Or is it 2024? What year is it, Miriam? Three, I think. Three, okay. You're ahead of time. Are you always ahead of time? <laughs> <laughs> or ahead or behind. I don't know where I am. Uh, but, you know, somebody sent me, one of my listeners sent me a link to the show that you did. I forget the man's name who came and visited you four years uh, apart. Um, ben Fogel. Ben Fogel. Right. That was really, really well done, that that program. Um, oh, yeah. And he just, this guy sent it to me. He said, hey, I think these are your kind of people. You know, they travel around. They're they're very thoughtful. Uh and uh, I watched it. It was amazing. I sent you an email, and here you are a week later. It's it's pretty cool. Yes, yes. I think we have a lot in common in the sense that you have studied so much about hunter-gatherers and studied other people, and we had the same interest, and we decided to live in the wilderness to see what would happen to us as We're- our own research project. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's go back and, and, and sort of get into this from the beginning. So you were raised in, in Holland, is that right? Yes, I was born in Holland in 1983. Yeah, come from a nice, loving family. Nothing like the into the wild guy, I always mm. add. A very friendly, safe, learning environment. It was very good fun to grow up. Um, and then I finished my studies and I went abroad. I went traveling and I basically never came back. And I know you were or are an athlete. Did, were you studying something involved with athletics or something totally different? I was an athlete. <laughs> yes, I did pole vaulting uh, when I was a teenager. Um, I, I joined the local athletic club and there was a coach, a very good one, a national coach, and he recognized in me um, strength in the upper body, especially in the chest. And he said, you would be good in pole vaulting. And I said, okay. <laughs> so um, I did that, yeah. And um, I trained every day. I learned about discipline. And I learned what it is like to really have a goal in life. And the best thing is that I find it normal to be strong. And if I feel myself getting weaker, I do something about it. And I think that's the best thing that I um, gained from that. But yeah, pole vaulting. Does that same approach apply psychologically? Well, I don't know. What is weakness psychologically? Mm. Are you weak if you can't stand civilization? (laughs) To me, psychological weakness is is about denial, is about refusing to face uh, something, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily, I, I don't mean to, to criticize people who are in that position, because it's not weakness, it's, it's, it's um, in, inability, right? Like maybe the trauma is so intense that you just can't face it. You're, you're too afraid to face it because it, the memories are too strong or whatever. Um yeah, but it's it but it feels to me like that's an exercise, right? To face our fears and to face the fear of death, to face uh, you know, the the fear of getting older and you know, all these things that everyone's running around trying not to think about. Um, you know, many great teachers have said you should always keep death present. You should always, you know, death should be like over your shoulder, whispering in your ear every day, like, enjoy this yeah. because it won't last forever. 
Um, yeah, it just occurred to me that idea of like when you feel yourself, when you feel a weakness in your body, then you do something about it. You do your push-ups or your sit-ups or your stretching or whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I think I think it would be good if we thought that way about our minds as well and our our psyches. Yes, indeed. Now you mention it, I do see if I would really like to do something like singing in public as a teenager. I thought, okay, I don't really dare to do this, but you know what? I'm going to practice. If visitors come, I will ask them, do you mind if I sing? Mm. They're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, practice, of course, the more you practice, uh, the more confident you get. Yeah. 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 And confident and also the fear uh, dissipates, right? Because you're so afraid of something when it's an idea of something, but when you actually do it, it's like, oh, okay. You know, even if yeah. you're, even if you fail utterly, you have the experience of failing and realizing like, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm still here. I still go on. Uh, you know, men yeah, are so Because you succeeded in the practicing. Exactly. Yeah. And and like men are so afraid yeah. to approach a woman, right. To, to, to introduce themselves and they, they get this whole idea. But if you just say, hello, even if the woman says, I'm sorry, I'm really busy. I, I don't want to talk to you right now. Okay, your life isn't over. It's just, uh, you, you move on, you know? It's, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so I'm, I'm recognizing a theme. Lancewood and pole vaulting. I'm seeing like <laughs> a lot of yeah, spears no in your life. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's not a javelin, but... Um, yeah, lancewood is, is actually a tree in New Zealand, a tree that I like very much because um, it transforms itself. When it is young, it looks completely different from when it is older. So it's an interesting species. Um, and it, you sort of think of lance, yeah, javelin, <laughs> something primitive, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm are, have you tra- transformed yourself or are you do you see yourself transforming in the future how how where are you in the lancewood process um yes i think i have changed a lot in the seven years in the wilderness in new zealand um because we live such utterly different lives um in the forest in the mountains uh hunting learning all these different skills um yes automatically i have become a totally different person yeah so did you hunt when you were in in holland at all i know it's very complicated to hunt in (laughs) holland right no (laughs) no i grew up um as a vegetarian my mother never cooked meat um i had nothing to do with animals i must say if i look back now i had no relationship with animals um and i never thought of hunting of course in Holland, it's impossible. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know any hunters, nothing. But when I came to New Zealand, where Peter was originally from, um, there we met hunters for the first time, and we saw somebody bow hunting. And then I remembered my hero of all times, Robin Hood. <laughs> and I thought, I would really love to learn how to hunt with a bow and arrow. Yeah, and you have. I saw on the program you're you're quite good with that. Yes, uh, but it's very, very difficult. So it took me many years to be successful with hunting. Yeah. So I started off, uh, let's go b- back a little bit. Um, 
I met Peter in India in 2006. We traveled overland in, uh, through Southeast Asia, including Papua New Guinea, and we ended up in New Zealand, which is his home country. I had to work for one year as a teacher to get my residency. And during that year, we were thinking, okay, we want to do something amazing. Let's go and go, let's go into the wild for four seasons, just four seasons, right? Uh, little did we know that it would become seven years. But in that year that I was teaching physical education, we were also practicing. And I bought this bow and I did archery in the backyard. Mm. And I had a friend who was a bow hunter. And I told him about my progress. And I said, Aaron, I'm pretty good at grouping these days. Grouping is when you put all your arrows in the same spot. And I said, I think I am ready to go hunting. How difficult can it be? And he, he said, you will see. <laughs> And i never forgotten that because that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, archery is one thing. Hunting is a wholly different kettle of fish. Um, it took me about six months to shoot my first goat with a bow and arrow. Mm. Uh, because uh, I couldn't find the goats, um, I missed the goat was way up in the mountain, too far. Uh, there was wind. Um, there's a million reasons why I was unsuccessful. But uh, yeah, it took some time to learn this. This and you were, you were using a, a recurve bow or a compound bow? Recurve, yeah. I thought we do that Robin Hood thing, <laughs> the traditional, and it's called traditional recurve and intuitive shooting. In other words, you have no idea where you're shooting. There's no sights. There's nothing. Just intuition. Mm, very zen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very difficult. Yeah. I've hunted uh, with a compound bow a couple of times. Yeah, difficult enough. Yeah, but but very different because you have a sight and everything's very calculated and, and no. um, yeah, scientific. And, and you don't have – it's uh, yours, I think, was 40 pounds, so you can't hold it and aim. You just sort of pull back and let it go, right? So, so we covered a lot, a lot of ground there, literally. So I, I know you from the program, you, you went to Africa intending to, to teach in Africa, but you didn't, you, where, where were you in Africa? I was in Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe. And you didn't enjoy that experience much. No. And I think this is the problem with a dream. So since I was 10 year old, we had magazines in school that pictured these very poor, but very happy African children. And if you are a really good person, you should go there and volunteer because mm. we are very lucky in Holland and we feel a little guilty and we, um, we pay our guilt off if we go volunteering, right? <laughs> so I did exactly that. Yeah. And I had these images of a dream because if you don't have fantastic images, you would never go there in the first place. And of course, a dream is never like reality. So I was completely disillusioned. Mm. I felt very lonely and, um, yeah, I didn't enjoy the being in a school anymore. I mean, I'd just done 17 years, so I've been fed up with school. But, yeah, yeah, it but was it, very sad, very difficult time for me. How old were you? Uh, just 21, just after yeah. my 21st birthday, I went there. So very young, very green, as we say. <laughs> uh, so, But that didn't stop you from traveling. So you went back to Holland and then you went to India? Um, my sister had been there and she said, Miriam, India is just fantastic. You will not feel unsafe for a moment. Hmm. Because the people are very nice, they're kind of small, and um, everything <laughs> is just very, um, feels safe. Yeah. And that was exactly right. 
Yeah, where, I went where... there. I traveled there on my own for five months uh -huh. before I met Peter. And that day, the 23rd of January, 2006, my life changed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So where did you travel in India? Um, all over the south, because my plan was to go to the Himalayas. And my idea was to meet someone who would take me there. So nice to be a beautiful <laughs> woman. I, you just, <laughs> I'll just meet some man who will solve the problem. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah I know. I, I've traveled in India quite a bit. And there, there are very few single woman travelers. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. very special. But had I been a man, I would not have needed any other man. And I would have mm, gone on my own. That's so, true. Yeah. Yeah. So you were traveling in the South. And what was Peter doing in India at the time? He was living in a little bamboo hut on a little island in the river, the Tungabhadra River, in near Hampi. Mm, Hampi, yeah. Famous Hampi. Uh, yeah, beautiful place. That's yeah. the place where um, Kipling wrote Jungle Book, you mm, know? Yeah, interesting. When it once was jungle, not anymore. And now but it's anyway, all stones. He was telling me that he lived in his little nature reserve with monkeys and snakes and um, all sorts of wild animals. And uh, he said, if you like, you can come and, and, you know, have a look around. And if you really like it, then you can stay. Um, but I just packed my bags and I moved in the next day. Mm. <laughs> and were you having a, yeah. a, a good time in India before you met Peter? It was true. Not a one moment did I feel unsafe. Chaotic, but brilliant. I loved it from the beginning. Not many yeah. people do. Did you like it? Yeah. Yeah. I Not from the beginning, I have to admit. Uh, yeah. I I first went there in 1987, maybe. Uh, so it was different before internet and, you know. Yeah. Um, India was, was still very isolated from the Western world. So there was no McDonald's, no Coca-Cola. It was it was aligned with the Soviet Union, so it was a different kind of society. Um, there was only one kind of car in the whole country, the ambassador. All any car was the same, only this one car. Uh, it's very very interesting. But uh, I had been working in Manhattan for a couple of years, and I quit my job, bought a one way ticket to India, flew to India, and uh, but I was still very much in the New York mind you know where things need to happen fast and you need to get this done and you know efficiency and i got to india and it was just like chaos you know like getting anything getting a ticket for the train could take two days you know like everything was insane and i was very frustrated by that uh for about a month and just very annoyed and everyone always trying to get my attention and bothering me and hey come to this place oh, come you know, my friend my friend and uh one day i was in pushkar in rajasthan and i had a a bang lassi you know which is like a, for people who don't know yeah. it's like a marijuana uh drink and i got high but in a very nice way and i remember I remember exactly, this is the day I arrived in India mentally, right? I'd been there for a month mm -hmm. physically, but this day I drank this lassi and I was high, but in a very gentle, subtle way. And first I was walking back to my guest house and this cow was walking, fake, coming toward me on the road. And I just sort of looked at this cow and, and I felt 
like this cow had so much wisdom. He was just moving really slowly, just relaxed, not bothered by anything. And I thought, ah, that's how I should be in India. That's the way to be in India. And then a little further up, there was a woman, an old woman, squatting at the side of this road, shitting in um, in the gutter on the side of the road. And as I walked by, she was looking at me and smiling and I was smiling and then she was like, like no shame at all. You know, she's just taking a shit. That's the way it is. And I just had this, this realization, like, I'm so uptight. I'm so nervous. I'm creating all these problems that I'm having. They're all coming from me, not from the place I'm here. I need to like be here accept the terms of this place, you know, accept it for what it is and stop complaining about what it isn't, you know? And it was my first real trip outside of the U S I'd been to Mexico before, but it was my first trip to Asia. Um, Yeah. That was a a, a big moment in my life. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Fantastic country. Organized chaos. I met um, on that trip. I met uh, a British guy. And he and his best friend had always wanted to go to India. I think kind of like your thing in Holland, you know, I'll go to Africa someday. I'll go to Africa. <laughs> and he and his friend flew to Calcutta it's when they finished uh, university, I think. And they said, okay, now we're going to do our dream. And they flew to Calcutta and they landed at the airport and they, they had a hotel room booked. They took a taxi to the ho- hotel room. And, you know, the drive from the airport to the city is like, holy shit, like, wow, you've never seen anything like it. And anyway, they, they got to the hotel and um, he, they, he took a shower and he said to his friend, let's go have some dinner. His friend said, no, nah, you go ahead. I'm going to just stay here and relax. And OK, so the guy went down, had some food came back his friend was asleep he woke up in the morning the friend had his suitcase packed and he said i'm leaving i can't do this <laughs> and he went back to the That's airport a bit quick. one night only one night yeah india <laughs> it's like you get it or you don't you know it's yeah yeah anyway yeah, so but so it's amazing it's amazing how what an impact that country has because Peter has spent almost 10 years in India. Yeah. And we still, I only spent one year, but we still have this sort of connection. Well, we're still drinking chai, we're making chapatis, we're eating curries, <laughs> all of these things. Yeah. 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 I'd, I'd love yeah. to have Peter on the podcast. So I don't want to ask you a lot of questions about Peter because I'd love to yeah. ask him directly uh, when it's possible. Um yeah. Listeners should know we we wanted to do the podcast with Miriam and Peter together, but the recording technology we didn't have, so yeah, it's fine to to do it separately. You're in Bulgaria now, like in a little cabin in the mountains, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, so we lived. I lived in total maybe twelve, thirteen years in New Zealand. I've got New Zealand passport. And in 2017, we decided to walk through Europe from France to Turkey. Basically, on the way, we saw this little cottage that cost almost nothing. And we bought it, not knowing when and if we would ever come back. And two years ago, we came back indeed. Um, And now we are living here. 
Fantastic. Okay, we're jumping around. I want to go back to India. And yeah. you, so you, you meet Peter in India. He's a former professor who quit his job in New Zealand. Did he go directly to India? Yep. So he went, because I know Australia and New Zealand have a special relationship with India. A lot of people travel, at least I met so many Australians, because every place else is so far away, right? It's it's closer. Yeah, yes. Maybe it's like Americans who go to Mexico or something. It's, it's, it's the closest, yeah. most different place. Uh, but anyway, yeah. so, so he, he was what, in his 40s when he changed his life? Um, he changed his life many times. He will tell you all about it. But when I met him, he was 52 and I was only 22. Right. And I always tell that if I had met him in Holland, I would have thought, well, nice guy, but age difference is too much. But India is such that you feel totally free. Like, who cares about the rules? <laughs> and don't think about the future. And um, so, yes, it was in that particular place and time that it just worked perfectly. And we mm. traveled together. Uh, no, we walked through the Himalayas. We started in Dharamsala, for the people who had been there. And we walked for two months, over eight mountain ranges, to uh, Ladakh. That was one of the best journeys we ever did. Wow. It's absolutely fabulous. And in typical Peter fashion, we didn't take any tent or cooking gear because the local people don't. <laughs> and they are human and we are human, so we should be able to do it. And so um, that's how we did it, indeed. It was a fantastic journey. What time of year was that? Oh, we planned it. Um, you know, the timing was right. We left in about June. We did three months of training in Dharamsala to get used to the altitude. And then we set off about May or June or so. Wow. That's that's a hell of a walk. I, I was in Srinagar in November yeah. on that first trip. And I actually bought a bus ticket to go to Ladakh. And I woke up in the morning. It was very cold. I was living on a houseboat on this lake. And um, and I said, ah, no. I was with two other guys I'd met traveling. And, and the three of us decided, no, no, we'll forget it. We'll get a bus next week or something. And those were the last buses because the passes closed. And, and that convoy got caught in an avalanche. It was crazy. Uh, yeah. I had a ticket for a bus that got caught in an avalanche. Yeah. Wow. Lots of, I don't remember how many 60, 70 people died. It was a whole a tragedy. Yeah. Whoa. Anyway, so I never did get to Ladakh, uh, but what a beautiful walk that must have been. Yeah. It was fantastic. And no yeah, tents. Very little. No, yeah. no tent. Uh, we just slept in the open. I said, what about the leopards? And he said, oh, don't worry about leopards. We just light a fire. So we did. And then after a few hours sleeping around the fire, it started to uh, rain. And then a huge thunderstorm came. I said, Peter, what do we do now? <laughs> he said, oh, now we're going into the cave. But only one person can sit in the cave and the other person is sort of outside. And then I thought, well, how about the leopard now? <laughs> it was just from one disaster into another. But, um, uh, yeah, we, we survived. What if a leopard was in the cave? I mean, come on. Your perspective, you're 22 years old. You meet this guy 30 years older than you. By the way, my partner's 27 years younger than me, so I have some, some oh, yeah. insight in, in, into this. Yeah. 
Um, you're in a very foreign place. You've never, you know, I mean, you've been in India for a while at this point, but it's really only your second trip away from Holland. This guy's yeah. been there for years. You really put yourself in his hands and he's saying, no tent and we're going to just walk. And, yeah. you know, I don't know if you're barefoot or what, but like you really <laughs> jumped Handled. in. Uh, he was very extreme. He still is. He is very extreme, adventurous, always taking risks, always want to be on the edge. Um, and consequently, he often almost dies. <laughs> um, but my life has never been boring since the day I met him. Yeah, uh, It's always an adventure. And he always steers us away from you know, falling into the mainstream, which is sometimes easy to do. But um, yeah, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous life, but um, yeah, it's all well worth it for me. So you walked across the Himalayas, you get to Ladakh, and then where do you go from Ladakh? Oh, then we went back to Humpy, and then we traveled overland as much as we could, all the way to Papua New Guinea, where he nearly died of malaria, because he had two strains of malaria. We were in the middle of the jungle no help. We finally made it to the hospital where no doctors. <laughs> and I basically had to carry him across the border into Indonesia to get him some medical help. Um, that was all one big nightmare. It sounds good now, like, uh, wow, what an adventure. But it, the actual fact was that it was almost a nightmare. And I don't think I will ever go back to Papua New Guinea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we, and then we slowly, slowly took us years to travel to Australia and eventually New Zealand. Right. So from India, you, you went through Bangladesh, Myanmar, Thailand, Malaysia. Thailand, Indonesia. We spent a lot of time in Indonesia. Did you go to Sumatra? Yeah, all those islands. Sumatra, yeah, Borneo. On the Palmy boats. Have you been on the Palmies? I'm not sure. What are they? <laughs> those huge boats. Like you imagine, that's what Titanic looks like. Oh. And I think they are allowed to have 1,500 people on it, but definitely thousands and thousands of people. Oh, so no. we sleep outside on the deck. Right. Yeah, I took yeah. a boat from Singapore. This was the same trip. So this would have been like 1988. I took a, a boat mm -hmm. from Singapore that went up. I forget the name of the river, but this in the center of Sumatra. And I slept on the deck of that. That was really, but it was a small, you know, maybe 200 people. Uh, and no one slept on the deck. I was the only one. Uh, everyone else, I had oh. a, with a ticket, I had like a berth, you know, down below deck. I had like a little hole, yeah. and it, but it was horrible down there. It, you know, it was smelled, yeah, there was exactly. fumes and everything. And I was yeah. like, fuck this, I'm going. And I slept on the deck and everyone was like, you're crazy. Why are you sleeping up here? But the same in India. I rode on the luggage racks of the buses everywhere yeah, and the local there. people thought i was crazy it's like are you kidding guy look at this view and you're down there in the dust yeah yeah yeah, yeah. outside is much better yeah sumatra was really interesting bukatingi i remember and uh lake toba did you go to yeah lake toba? Too, yeah. yeah 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 interesting Fantastic. So you went overland, so you're traveling all, all the time, and you never got tired. You never said, ah, fuck it, I'm going back to Holland where everything is clean and, and easy. No, no, you, you, indeed, traveling for years is very tiring. It's not sustainable. 
and in the end you can't really absorb all the impressions anymore yeah. it's um yeah you sort of see, you see an you see an elephant and you're like oh yeah another elephant and later you think like what that was an amazing happening but mm. yeah i was in the end very tired of traveling but never want to go back to holland but uh, go to new zealand because peter was always telling me about new zealand so uh, that was the promised land for me and I guess that didn't disappoint you the way Africa, Zimbabwe did. No, no, I love New Zealand. Yeah, it's fantastic wilderness areas, beautiful high mountains, rivers you can drink out of. Yeah, camping, hunting, hmm. and no um, dangerous animals. Hmm. Really, no snakes or or any no no predators. Nothing. So what what would eat the goats, uh, the mountain goats? Us. Just just humans. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. But they are introduced by the, the British. Oh, right? okay. It was a, a bird island, and all the animals were introduced by the British and the um, some by the Maori, the rat, for example. Mm. Uh, so all of those animals are called the pest animals, and. Um, that of course causes a lot of environmental damage and the government is encouraging people to hunt. Okay. Right. It's like the same in Hawaii where, where I was hunting uh, feral pigs, same thing. They want you to come and take as, as many as you can. Yeah. Is that the same captain cook pig? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You put them on every Island. Yeah. Okay. Clever idea, but with disastrous uh, consequences. Yeah. Yeah, Captain Cook. Interesting. Um, yeah, so, okay, so the, you, you go overland, then you're in New Zealand, and, and you decide you're going to go in the wilderness for four seasons, and you end up seven years? Did you, have, did you build a yeah. house or something? No, we were nomadic. We deliberately didn't want to settle anywhere. I don't think this is allowed, even, mm-hmm. either. Um, so we were nomadic. We walked like nomads through the mountains, um, basically going where the hunting is good. <laughs> because once I hunted all the hares in the valley, um, we had to up sticks and go, just like the hunter-gatherers. Right. Yeah, so uh, we saw a lot of New Zealand, always moving, living in different places. But sometimes we stayed in a little hut, for example, Abel Tasman National Park for one year, and we grew a garden, and that's where I learned different skills. So looking at your life, how old are you now? 40 this year. Congratulations. Congratulations. (laughs) You made it, right? You you made it this far. Yeah. I always think I I just turned 61 this year. uh, And last year for to celebrate my 60th year, uh, my partner and I traveled around the world for a year. It was the first uh, serious traveling I've done in a while because I traveled all through my twenties and a good bit of my thirties. Um, yeah, did yeah. you write your old manifesto? My old manifesto? <laughs> no, not yet. You did at sixty. You write your old manifesto. Oh, really? Is that a is that a Dutch tradition? No, you said that on a podcast. I'm oh, did, oh, did I? <laughs> I don't know what I say. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, so you didn't. It's embarrassing. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I never listen to my podcasts. I just record them and put them up and and some people will will write to me and they say, oh, I, I discovered your podcast and I like it. I went back and started listening from the beginning. I've been doing this for over 10 years. And so it's yeah. very interesting. Those people, like they know me when I was 50. It's weird. It's just a weird, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't remember what I've said. But yeah, old manifesto. I probably should write that. Um, <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> But I always think like, you know, you, you, no one can steal money you've already spent, right? So getting older is a privilege because it means you've already had these experiences. You you can't lose them. You can't lose those years, you know, because they're in the bank. They're they're already in your soul and your spirit and your memory. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, congratulations. You're you Thanks. look 25 if that yeah. matters <laughs> on this phone <laughs> with this light <laughs> do you have a filter <laughs> a special yeah, maybe a young filter yeah no any, not too bad. anyway so 40 okay you're you're uh 40 years old we can say you're an adult now right so yep. when you're you're looking at the things that you've learned from living this very unusual life are there things that can be communicated to other people or are they things that are just unique to your experience and and you can't because I'm sure you have many experiences where you're at a party or you go home to visit your family and people are saying Miriam what's it like what do you what do you learn out there can you really convey that or is it just something that stays with you and Peter yeah we can convey quite a lot um, because we come from the world they understand. And I think that's a difference with tribes, mm. hunter-gatherer tribes that are still there, right? Um, so, yeah, my life has changed so much from working on a, in a school in New Zealand from to living in the wilderness. The biggest thing I would say is time. That what, to me, living in um, the biggest prison is living in time. For example, a few months ago, I, a woman asked me to look after her cow and her horse and a goat. There is no fences around here, so I had to just sit with those animals in the field. Not a bad job. I had to do it for three, month, for three weeks only. It was an absolute horror to me because I had to do it every day. So I suddenly found myself back in time, a schedule, mm-hmm. and I realized that is to me the biggest prison. It's not the work. It's not the fact that I get paid and not paid. It's not money. It's not salary. It's time. And that precisely we experience also in the wilderness, that time and the sense of time changed completely. So our mind had to slow down. (laughs) It had to slow right down. And to me, sort of the rhythm of nature, Mm -hmm. Um, because the trees have a totally different rhythm from our mind and it is quite hyperactive especially mm. when you've been on the machine with um on the internet especially yeah so we didn't take anything with us no telephone no clock and no emergency beacon no machine of any kind because we wanted to see what would happen with our mind and indeed we had to slow down and it took about three weeks to slow down 
And what happens in those three weeks is that you are bored to death. You have to go through deep boredom, not just normal boredom, <laughs> deep boredom. And uh, that is like a sort of an agony. But what is boredom? Is when you do nothing, right? How can it be so difficult to do nothing? Mm. And yet that was like the hardest thing we had to do, to do absolutely nothing. And, uh, but after three weeks, our mind did slow down and we feel more connected and we are at ease doing nothing. And just sit around and look at the beautiful river or sit around the fire. Just living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a spiritual practice or meditation practice or anything like that? Um, I come from quite a sort of a religious and spiritual background. And we thought maybe when we are out there, maybe God will talk to us. And <laughs> I was quite open for it. Um, I don't necessarily believe in God, but I thought if God will talk, he will talk there. But unfortunately, he didn't speak. Maybe he's there, but he's very, very silent. <laughs> so um, I had all these other things, like if I kill something, maybe I should say a prayer to thank the spirit, like, you know, the American Indians. Yeah. I read all the stories. But when I actually did kill something, it was very intense, emotional even. But there was nothing in me that thought, okay, now I should say my prayer. I have become very, very pragmatic. So all my spiritual beliefs slowly vanished over time, which I find surprising. And to sit down and to go and meditate feels very um, superfluous. <laughs> mm. And I think this is a side effect, yoga and meditation, is a side effect of civilization. One requires the other. Because when you are in the wilderness, there was just no such inclination to go and sit and meditate. Because you're already meditating. I guess so, yeah. And what I also noticed when you go hunting, I think the deer can hear your thought. So it's best not to think. Mm. And so automatically it becomes like a meditation walk. Yeah. Because if you think too much, you can't listen. You only hear your own thought, right? So it's uh, very beneficial not to think and to look around very carefully. Yeah. So I guess meditation is just a natural part of the day. Yeah, I, I did a Vipassana retreat years ago, uh, which is 10, 10 days of silence and no yeah. no reading, no radio, no conversation, no eye contact even, just totally trying to be in your own head. Uh, yeah. I was reminded when you were talking about the deep boredom, you know, it's just meditating all day nothing no distractions no nothing coming in yeah. and it was a very interesting experience because first you know i tried to entertain myself with memories and you know songs and all the stuff that was in my head and it was like peeling the onion you know you layer after layer after layer and i got deep and i started remembering things from my childhood that I never would have thought about if I hadn't gone through all those layers. Yeah. Um, and I feel like 
I, I felt that hunting, what you're describing and hunting, this, this like um, focus on the wind and the sounds and the way I was moving and the smells. And that was enough to occupy my brain. And so there was no, yeah. it didn't need to go around in circles. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And, and I think that's the point. A lot of meditation practices, uh, there's a famous book called um, Chop Wood, Carry Water, uh, a Buddhist yeah. book. And it's about, yeah. The idea is not to spend one hour every day sitting, staring at a wall, meditating. The idea is to get to a place where whatever you're doing, you're focused on that one thing. Yep. And that is your meditation. Whether you're chopping wood, you're carrying water, you're building a fire, you're making love, you're listening to the rain. Whatever you're doing, you're doing it 100%. You're not distracted. That's the meditation. Yeah. Yeah, in the wilderness, it's exactly that because there are no distractions. Yeah, <laughs> it's so interesting. No Facebook or Instagram yeah. or nothing. Yeah, uh, no other Traffic. people. So we didn't yeah. see other people for months on end. So that that raises a question I wanted to talk with you about um, because I think a big a big part of hunter gatherer life that modern people are missing is community. And you guys have <clears throat> found a way to to live a hunter-gatherer life in many ways, in terms of your diet and your movement and, you know, the way you sleep and, and interacting with the natural world, but you don't have community. Do you ever wish that no. you you had, you know, 20 or 30 people with you and that you were having this experience in a social way? It would be an interesting uh, experiment to do that. But I think it would also be quite difficult, to be honest. <laughs> Just <laughs> in dealing a tribe, with I think people. We, yeah, I yeah. think we idealize it easily. Um, but to live in a group of people, you have to um, yeah, come to certain rules. And back in the day, I think like um, the role in the community was already given to you. Like you are the shaman because your father is a shaman. Um, but how do you come to those roles um, if you just set it up? Yeah. That's I don't a big know. question. Yeah. 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 But and... I think I read it also in your book about the importance of community. Um I think that a lot can be compensated with communion, the oneness with nature. So if you don't have other people around, at least you have the connection with nature. And I think that's just as important. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I just uh, recorded a podcast a couple of days ago with a friend of mine named John Colapinto, who is a journalist, and he went and um, lived for a while with a tribe in the upper Amazon who are really fascinating people. Uh, actually, I think I wrote about them in Sex at Dawn and Civil. I think I wrote about them in both books, the Pinaha people, Pinahan. And uh, their entire like their language and and their the way they think everything is designed 
to maintain that sort of immediate contact with the here and now that that you're talking about like for example there's a there's a missionary who lived with them who's one of the only people who speaks their language and he went there intending to convert them to christianity but after a few years he ended up converting to their worldview yeah. and and he dropped the christianity and uh his, his whole life changed uh mm-hmm. daniel everett is his name but at one point he tells the story about how he's talking about jesus and trying to you know tell them how great jesus was and one of the men says to him uh daniel did you know jesus and he <laughs> says no no he lived a long time ago and the guy says well did your father know jesus no, 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 way before my father. And then he said, ah, uh, then stop talking about Jesus. If you didn't know <laughs> him, yeah, if you didn't know him and your father didn't know him, then uh, it's just some bullshit story. We're not interested. Like they, everything is now in here. No, they don't even have words like, like wor- words for colors. Uh, it's, there's, there's no word for red. There's, the color of this berry in this time of year or there are no directions. There's no east, west, up, down. It's toward the sky, toward the earth, toward the river, toward the mountain. It's everything is concrete. Yeah. Really interesting how language itself, like, you know, you're talking about social roles, right? Like you're the shaman, you're the, this, you're the, but also even the the structure of language can pull your mind back to the present. Yeah, that's right. Because language is thought, of course. Yeah. Uh, what I wanted to say when you were saying about the uh, Papasana is that that's exactly also what we experienced in the first months, I think four months, we call that the spiders came out of the corner. Mm. So what happens was, because there was no other input, our mind had to calm down, and all those memories of the past all came up, not once, 20 or 30 times. And then it didn't occur to us to sort of analyze them because it was pretty irrelevant. They dissolved over time. They weren't solved by analyzing or talking about it. Not at all. They dissolved because it was so irrelevant, like mm. Jesus 2,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, all of these things sort of slowly ebbed away without analyzing anything. And because there was no other input, nothing came to replace it. And that's when we experienced more clarity because the mind was literally just cleared up. <clears throat> the more unusual our lives are, uh, in a way it enriches us because we have so many experiences, so many unique insights but it there's a price to pay for these experiences and not just in terms of yeah. getting malaria or you know d- physical discomfort but the more unique your life is the fewer people can really understand it yes that's true do you ever feel right. does that is that a burden for you ever that like you know there's one person who's been through all this with you and he's yeah. 30 I'm years old. I'm just realizing that when you say that. You know, yeah. The only person who really understands me is Peter. 
Does that yeah. frighten you or, or is that a burden? Yeah, it's a bit sad in a way. What happens if he dies? Will I feel utterly lonely? Yeah. Maybe I'll fall in a black hole, <laughs> never to be seen again. I, I mean, I, I feel like the way you described your relationship in India, and and I mean, I don't know if it continues with the same energy, but it it felt very much that Peter was like a mentor and teaching you like, here's how you travel and here's how you don't worry yeah. about leopards and here's how you find food. And, you know, you become the teacher at some point, you know, that's when things shift. I know you're, you're teaching classes now and already getting into that. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, it is interesting that in the last 18 years, indeed, things have shifted. Well, for a start, I'm maturing, of course. Also, he is now 70 this year, mm -hmm. and he's feeling a little older. And with that also comes um, a little bit more fragile. So he relies on me now to take the lead. And I have to tell him, like, oh, don't worry. We'll be all right. Uh, I will organize it. I will pack our bags. Um, and, um, yeah, because he's a little more, a bit more nervous, maybe. Yeah, so the roles have indeed almost reversed. Well, he had that experience with his kidneys that you talked about in the program that seemed yeah. a transformative uh, experience. I mean, I know there have been near-death experiences in the past traveling and, you know, with the malaria, yeah. and, and I'm sure there are many others. Um, but that's something different where the doctor says, ah, you know, without dialysis, you're probably not going to make it. And he consciously chose uh, to die if that's the way it was going to be. That, yep. That's a very, I, I was very happy when, when you guys talked about that in the program because, because it, it made it very clear to me that at the moment of truth, Peter's, the way he, his principles, the way he was living his life in theory no, that was actually the way he wanted to live his life. Like he, he was, yeah. he didn't lose his nerve in the hospital and say, oh, okay, give, hook me up to the machines. You know, he stuck with his, yeah. his approach to life. Um, yeah, yeah, it was amazing. I've never seen so much courage in one person as I've seen in Peter. Because it's one thing to say like, nah, you should risk your life and be courageous. It's very different if you actually facing death and the doctor offers a solution and then you still say no yeah so what happens is in 2018 we went to australia and he got sick with a stomach bug and uh, severe diarrhea and he started to faint luckily we were close to the hospital i brought him into hospital and um five days later his kidney started to fail this happens quite a lot with um people out there you know with the drought you get dehydrated kidney failure as a result of dehydration and the man said you should recover in a month or two for acute kidney failure then we went back to new zealand and then the doctor said i'm sorry um you are not recovering you have chronic kidney failure and you will only survive with dialysis if you don't take dialysis you have three percent chance on survival so peter says well dialysis well we looked into it there's many pros and cons with dialysis transplant immune system, the whole lot. It's complicated. 
Yeah. In the end, he said, no, I will not do it because that requires a life living in town, hooked up on machines. Uh, I'll go for a quality of life, not a quantity. And um, yeah, let's prepare to die if that's the story. And so uh, for the first time in 10 years, we uh, rented a house because you're not going to save money when you're going to die. <laughs> so we had a nice house and the best place we could find, but a little bit of comfort. And um, yeah, we're ready for him to die every day. You know, you take your time. And, and it actually was a very special time because uh, we appreciated every hour together. Mm. You know, it's uh, as though time slows down. And that's also the great teacher of death. In a way, we should always live like that. But uh, of course, he did not die. He only recovered up to a certain point, but enough to go and immigrate to Bulgaria and fly from a COVID-free country in, in, into the middle of a pandemic. I, I hope, uh, and to the extent that I'm, I'm able, I, I hope I will uh, sort of take an active role in this, but that when it's time to die, I'll die quickly and not leave a big problem for my partner, you know, not have uh, 10 years of hooked up to a machine, for example, you know, uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's obviously there's no good option here, but uh, the, the best yeah. option is when it's time to go, you go, you don't hang around and, and make other people suffer. Yeah, that's the ideal. But I always remember Nietzsche who said, die at the right time. And then he himself was looked after by his mother and sister for, what, 10 years or so while he being mad. Yeah. So, yeah, you never know. But, yeah, definitely it's good to have that intention. Yeah, for sure. So what uh, what does the future look like for you? I know I mentioned you're teaching a course. Tell us about the the teaching that you do. Through random events, we found this place nearby and that was very suitable for accommodating some uh, courses and we decided maybe it would be a great idea to attract some people here is where the people come in and uh, offer philosophy and nature courses and uh, i get quite a few visitors on my website and um, it went really well and everyone is full and we always have more participants than we can host and that's fantastic because we would love to discover something through dialogue discover new ways of thinking and being and one of the topics we discussed there is your favorite topic <laughs> in sex at dawn uh, is open relationships so is there so it's very difficult to change your life radically but it is possible to change your relationships radically mm. because that's the right around you right and so, yeah, we do talk about that because Peter and I believe that we don't own each other. And how could love ever be bad? If he or I love someone else, how could that possibly be bad? I don't understand that for the life of me. So all these sort of things uh, we discuss with other people. Mm, interesting. How many people come to the classes? Uh, sort of 17. 17. And how long does it last? Uh, for a week. Mm. It's a week. It's quite intense. Um, it's uh, full on uh, and be quite tired by the end of it. But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful process of what we discovered together. And uh, people fly in from all over the world, right? Yep. That's right. We had a guy from Canada 
last year and it just come for one week to bulgaria and flies back wow. yeah, amazing wow it's crazy um so anyone who's listening to this who wants to know more about that uh would go to your website can you say the yeah. the website what is it our website is miriamlanswood.com miriamlanswood.com miriam thank you for your time uh well, it's, thank you so much for having me. I wish we could do this in person. I, I would love to to be in Bulgaria with you and uh, slow down my mind a little bit. I, I almost, it, it's, I mean, the way you live your life resonates with me. Obviously, I'm very interested in these things. But more than the specifics, it's, I'm inspired by people who just live life the way they want to, whatever that is. You know, whatever, whether it's living in the woods or it's whatever it is, it's just they follow the inner voice that tells them what's real and they learn to ignore the the voices of society that are telling them lies. Uh, that's very Yeah, and I think that encourages others. They think, well, if they can do it, I can do it too. And that's exactly right. They are human and I'm human. <laughs> right. Yeah, go about that. All right. Thank you for listening to that, Miriam Lancewood. What an inspirational woman. I hope the the technological delays <clears throat> due to her being in a little cabin in Bulgaria and me being in a little cabin in Crestone uh, weren't too oppressive. I, I tried to cut out uh, as much of the silence as I could without uh, making it choppy and weird. Um, but yeah, you know, 2023, that's how it works, I guess. Anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, please don't forget about the Amazon affiliate link that you will find at the episode notes at chrisryan.substack.com and Ponderosa Millworks for all your beautiful wood slab needs and bowls and chairs and bar stools and God knows what else they make there. Michael and his crew make it. Yeah ponderosamillworks.com Alright, I'm going to play you out with a very smooth and funky song about summertime by a band called uh, Fort Francis and I'm going to post the video on uh, chrisryan.substack.com It's pretty funny Hope summertime's going smooth for you wherever you are Here it is, a groove slightly transformed Just a bit of a break from the norm Just a little something to break the monotony Of all that hardcore dance That has gotten to be a little bit out of control It's cool to dance, but what about the groove That soothes the mood romance? Now give me a soft, subtle mix And if it ain't broke, then don't try to fix it I Think of the summers of the past Adjust the bass and let the alpine blast Pop in my CD, let me run around and put your car on cruise. Lay back, cause it's the summertime. Summer, summer, summertime. Time to sit back in a while. Summer, summer, summertime. Time to sit back in a while. School is out and it's sort of a bug. Back then I didn't really know what it was But now I see what have of this The way that people respond to summer madness The weather is 
Those hot girls are dressing less and checking out the fellas to tell them who's best. Riding around in your Jeep or your Benzo, or in your Nissan sitting in Lorenzo's. Back in Philly, we be out in the park. Place called the Plateau is where everybody go. Guys out hunting and girls doing likewise. Honking at the honey in front of you with a light eyes. She turn around to see what you're beaming at. It's like the summer's a natural aphrodisiac. Now I'm a composer's rhyme to hit you and get you equipped for the summertime. Summer, summer, summertime. Some have got girls there. The temperature's about 88. I hop in the water plug just for old times' sake. Break to your crib, change your clothes once more. 'Cause you're invited to a barbecue that's starting at four. Sitting with your friends as y'all reminisce about the days growing up and the first person you kissed. And as I think back, makes me wonder how the smell from the grill could spark up nostalgia. All the kids playing out front, little boys messing around with the girls playing double dutch. While the DJ's spinning a tune as the old folks dance at your family reunion, and then six o'clock rolls around, you just finish wiping your car down. It's time to cruise, so you head to the summertime hangout. It looks like a car show. Everybody come looking real fine, fresh from the barbershop, a fly from the beauty salon. Every moment front and maxing, chilling in the car, spend all day waxing. Leaning to the side 'cause you can't speed through two miles an hour, so everybody sees you. There's an air of love and of happiness, and this is the Fresh Prince new definition of summer madness. Summer, summer, summertime. 